Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Body Liberation for All. You have probably noticed we are at the start of body hatred season. You've probably seen an uptick in ads promising to help you change your body, shrink your body once and for all, and probably an uptick in the amount of negative body talk that you hear in people at work and at home. So I thought it would be really helpful to have a couple of episodes back to back that could help put a little bit of distance in between that sense of urgency to change yourself and that vulnerability to falling into the diet trap. There's nothing wrong with any of us who feel compelled to try and change the body. This is just a natural reaction to all this messaging we're getting. The issue is that dieting is shown to be harmful and it also is proven to be really ineffective when it comes to changing your body or making your body smaller over time. So not only will it not help you reach this goal of modifying your body, it will undermine your sense of confidence and undermine your health in a lot of ways. So it's important to highlight this at the start of the year when so many of us are being exposed to things that will tempt us to go down that road. Today, my guests Dana and Hillary from Be Nourished are going to share some of the intersecting systems of oppression that work really well or hand in hand with fat phobia. I think this is an excellent foundation to starting the process of questioning whether or not dieting and diet culture is something that you want to be affiliated with in any way. Next week, I'll be releasing a bonus episode that is a workshop that I did late last year to help people look at alternatives to dieting and ways of looking at food that are independent from that focus on body size. Make sure you pop back in next week to check that out. All right, let's get started with today's show. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited for my queer folk, my trans, people of color. Let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Hello, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. It's so good to be here. You have a ton of experience, the two of you, explaining the concept of body neutrality, body liberation, all of the terms that people who are still stuck in diet culture that they're not familiar with. What is the simplest way that you explain your approach to wellness and how it's different from what we typically see in the mainstream? Our work is really centered on divesting from all of the systems of harm that participate in mainstream conversations we have about health and wellness, because it's really hard to move towards a sense of freedom in our bodies if those techniques and ideas are really rooted in dominant culture, white supremacy, all these pieces that are really send people into striving, fixing, consuming, buying, instead of really understanding, or instead of really being able to come home to their inherent value and their wholeness, 
we really talk about how this work is about getting the problem focused outside of the bodies of the people that we support, or all of us really, and moving towards an image of well-being that really includes all bodies. It doesn't have any ceilings on that inclusion or any barriers to that inclusion. And when we start to you know, look at that vision, there's so many constructs that kind of have to be imploded in order to really invite everyone in. The fact that you acknowledge that white supremacy is entangled and this intolerance that society has for certain types of bodies is really significant, especially knowing that you've been doing this work since before this major, I don't know if we want to call it a second wave of the civil rights movement, but it's definitely not something, I've never heard the term white supremacy at any dietetic space. And my entire educational experience was chock full of microaggressions and the white supremacy was all over the place, but it was never spoken about. How did the two of you end up having that realization? Was it separate or together? And how did you know that your different educational backgrounds would be the powerhouse that it is for your clients? We have been working together for 15 years. And when we started this work, we just knew we wanted to offer people something different that wasn't being offered and that nobody was going to hire us and pay us a salary to do the work that we wanted to do, even though we really didn't know what the work was. We just knew what was out there was not cutting it for us. We've been learning and unlearning together for 15 years. So we're constantly in conversation about this stuff. And I think in terms of like how we came to, to see the ties, it was pro- like the timing for us both was probably pretty similar than just our own paths. I remember the more you get into looking at fat phobia and what's driven a weight centric model of healthcare the more you get into like the social justice aspects of this work and seeing the weight bias that's in our professional trainings and looking at weight stigma and how it impacts healthcare. And as you go down that path, you start to see all the systems of injustice and the ways poverty and racism and a variety of other forms of oppression impact health and well-being. And you start to see health as a social construct. And then who constructed the social construct? And I remember listening to Sabrina Strings on Christy Harrison's podcast and talking about where the field of dietetics started with white women from magazines. And I don't even think I can really speak to this here eloquently because I'm still trying to tie these pieces together. But when I was thinking about these magazines and like home ec, like the school, like Oregon State University, the dietetic school is in the school of home economics and like white women and whiteness and what was the right food and what was the bad food and the way bodies and size were involved. Like this is just some of the ways I've started to connect the dots. And then of course, Sabrina's book comes out and there's a few even your fat friends article on the racist roots of the BMI and understanding eugenics and then seeing that's where this mathematician like comes from you it's just so I'm just like sharing a train of thought that is how I've come to really settle in 
but it's certainly been an unfolding for 12 years, I would say, mm. and of deepening our own analysis and threat, seeing the threats and starting to see it everywhere. Yeah. When you started out in healthcare or counseling people, did you think that social justice was going to be a major determinant of health? No, I don't know. I don't think I, back then, I would have been able to put my finger on it. Hillary's answer might be different. Yeah, I grew up with folks, uh, with family that was really geared towards social justice. And a lot of the early reading I did was like Black liberation reading and things. So I did think I knew that. And I a lot of what's motivated me as a therapist, I'm not a dietitian, I'm a therapist, has been the incredible whitewashing of the counseling field. And that's been, and like trying to make it so clinical and how when that's happening, it's leaving everyone out and it's not any more effective when people do that. And so I think I did know my early work was much more, I've always been involved in activism since I was in probably college or late high school. And I think I did know, and I think one of my primary motivators doing this work and what's kept me doing this work is learning and making those ties and bringing those pieces closer together, not only to eradicate fat phobia and make in, and make the possibility of living in our bodies safer, but also to really look at the helping profession and the ways we show up to help people and the ways that we, and our positionality and that, and the skill involved in doing the work well and wanting there to be more links between activism and communities of practice and equity and solidarity in the helping profession. So I've been equally motivated by both training other professionals and how to do that differently as I have been in helping people find a little more libertary consciousness in regards to how they live in their bodies. They feel yeah. like very tied together for me in some ways. That makes sense. With all of the distress that we've seen people going through this year, it's been really disappointing to me to see that people still lean so heavily into focusing on their body size through 2020. It was a very difficult year for so many different reasons. But to see that obsession with a quarantine 15, I don't know why I thought if things were this dire and people were literally dying for once, we wouldn't be worried about the size of our bodies. Mm. Were you at all surprised by that? Or is that par for the course? And you just know that so much of the planet has a lot of work to do. I think I wasn't surprised only from the perspective of like how much our bodies serve as to be an excellent distracting project from the enormity of the feelings that are often associated with dealing with existential crisis and being alive in general. I've watched my clients over the years and certainly myself be lured or seduced back into the body project, whatever that is for someone, especially when like shit really hits the fan. And I wasn't super surprised. What has been, I think, really scary and detrimental, and I've been maybe naively surprised by, was like this focus on fatness and COVID. Feel is so so manipulative, so dastardly, so 
preying on this distraction to distract away from the harm that's been caused in COVID and how people have not been protected, taken care of, and how our systems have failed us so significantly and our current administration has failed us so significantly. And you've seen England, they've even started like a diet campaign around like a national one around COVID and stuff. So there's even this preying on this very wise and natural coping skill that comes from living in a very fat phobic uh, culture. And then they prey upon it and make more money on it. And that whole thing makes me want to throw up pretty much. Like it's just so disgusting. So that's maybe been the hardest part for me. I think we always have a lot of respect for people coping in this way, coping with being distracted by their bodies or through dieting, because I think finding your way into the alternative is really hard. And then finding support, even if you find this alternative conversation is really hard. And I get why people return to it. And, but I don't understand the prey. Like I do understand the preying on it and capitalism, like stage capitalism, there's tons of money to be made, yeah. but I find it absolutely abhorrent. It's really disappointing. And then I know for some people who feel like they understand the science is not there. It does not support dieting. It is clear that it causes more harm than anything else. That's the only thing we can be sure it will do is harm the body and whether or not it'll shrink your body in a permanent way. Like who knows, it depends on the person and probably not, but a lot of people because of the money factor wonder how will I even draw people to my practice Yeah, if I do not in some way prey upon that fear of fatness. And we've mm-hmm. seen the bod pause movement by and large go down that pathway. It's not mm-hmm. inclusive. It certainly doesn't think about size diversity when it gets to being a super fat or even are you a disabled fat person? Are you a fat person of color? Well, you're not going to be represented in the bod pause movement in general. Mm-hmm. Was it like that 12 years ago? Or when did you notice that shift? I guess social media, right, Dana? When we started, there was no Facebook, which is so funny to think about. I was like, saying that was the nothing. other day. We were left, when we started this work, there was no Facebook. <laughs> Makes me feel like we walked up until two miles in the snow. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> both days or whatever it was uh we got it off the ground some way without I know I don't know how we did that either I think there's been like I think social media has been everything for this movement in terms of it picking up speed like I I would have never guessed when we started this that there'd be like a show like shrill on the air or there would be even accessibility of this movement and yet there's a problem where folks come into this and they're like they're especially white women are drawn in because this has been central in their lives, but they have no idea of the depth of the conversation and how much harm can happen from not understanding having that analysis yet. And that's where a lot of the harm is done, I think, in the body positive movement over and over again. But when did it switch? I don't know. Yeah, definitely whenever Instagram showed up. Yeah, I, I can definitely believe that. It just seems intuitive, though, that it should be an intersectional movement. But there are a lot of people out there who are not self-aware and mm-hmm. are still struggling with the concept that they have any privilege because, yes, women are marginalized. We all know mm-hmm. that misogyny is a mm-hmm. problem, but mm-hmm. that's not the end of the list. <laughs> no, <laughs> people who are disturbing. being given a hard time. 
yeah, how much whiteness gets to flaunt itself in this movement because people don't know what they don't know. And that yeah. sucks. How do you navigate that as, well, I don't want to assume how you self-identify. Do you identify as a white woman? Yeah. So how do you navigate that seeing, how do you make that distinction between what I call toxic whiteness, which is almost like its own monster that people Mm -hmm. got sucked into when they moved here to be able to have the privilege that comes with presenting and living as a white person who's abandoned their old ways Mm -hmm. from whichever country they came from. How do you navigate that without internalizing shame or taking responsibility for other people's shame? Wow. (sighs) Giving us good questions. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good one. (laughs) So the question is, how do we, how do we separate toxic whiteness from in my mind, just being like a regular white person. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how can you, because I see a lot of people struggling with the guilt and Mm. the guilt doesn't accomplish anything. And it also paralyzes people. But a lot of times when people of color are complaining about white people, I feel they're complaining, maybe not everybody, but people are complaining about toxic whiteness, Mm -hmm. not every human with white skin. And I wonder how people who are actively involved in social justice Mm -hmm. have been able to navigate that versus the other people who are always like, but I'm not racist. Anytime you try to talk about anything, but it becomes like about the individual and it's obviously this painful triggering thing. What is the, what's the secret I think our personal processes, reactivity, like all that shit that's part of our conditioning as white people does not have any, doesn't show up in our world. Like that's private. You know what I mean? That is Mm. not for consumption because it's harmful to other people and it's our own process and shit. You know what I mean? To work through it just doesn't, it's not for public consumption. And it's also, I don't expect that other people should care for that in any way or care about it in any way. Other than like people I've reserved for that conversation and have consent to have that conversation with. And in our work, like we really want, we want people to have access to a much more liberatory conversation. We want everyone to have access to that. We are not the people to deliver it to everyone as white women, but we can stand for something. And so what we do try to do is decenter ourselves where we can and then do good advocacy and allying as a verb where we can and and then have hold some space as white women for other white people that are on their way over and haven't figured it all out yet and are still figuring out how to be better people so that's kind of where I see my role in that that but that's a conversation that's ever shifting with my own evolution and the thing is my whiteness is going to betray me at times, like my dominant identities are going to betray me. And I'm just working on knowing that I'm going to do this really badly and imperfectly much of the time and that I'm here to learn. But that's where we center it. I feel like seeing ourselves as done or somewhere or arrived or expert would be rooted in white supremacy. Like we're just here for the ride and we've had a lot of privilege and support to get where we are in this work and we're just trying to use that for good whenever we can 
Yeah. Oh, that's so real. Yeah. I can see people having a really hard time knowing that there's no point at which you could say done, totally woke, can't ever make a mistake again. (laughs) All done. Yep. No, I'm just going to blow it every day. It's my assumption instead of assuming that I'm going to get good at a girls every day. I'm like just trading that for the assumption that I'm going to blow it most of the time. And how do you reconcile, since so many people assigned female at birth have this issue with feeling worthy and thinking we always need to be good or perfect, how do you get to the point where you can accept that is human and that is normal? That's the real thing. Mm -hmm. And the other expectations are false. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of this is talking about our social conditioning like in talking about social constructs and the ways we're indoctrinated unconsciously into these systems and really socialized into what Sonia Renee calls those body hierarchies, Mm -hmm. Sonia Renee Taylor, that really helps to, with all of these things that were socialized into whiteness, that were socialized into dominant culture, where some bodies are better than others. And I think that like we're socialized into diet culture. And so I, part of helping people reckon, we often talk about the reckoning is that like understanding that we've been socialized, that we haven't been seeing this, but once we start to see it, we can't unsee it. Mm. And that's where we start to make um, these connections between all these systems of oppressions. I think that takes the personal out of it, the shame mm-hmm. is like, we've all been socially condemned. We all cause harm. We all hold dominant and non-dominant identities. We've all experienced this conditioning. And that's that common humanity is what often brings self-compassion. Like oh, seeing really our struggles, seeing our learning, it's what makes us human. Our need for control, our not liking, not knowing, like these are things that are part of being human being conditioned for worthiness. Like we love asking people like, are we really hustling for health or are we hustling for worthiness? Because a lot of people won't give up diet culture because they are like, I just want to be healthy. So wrapped up in the health component of it. And what they're really saying is I want to be seen as worthy. Like worthiness is wrapped up in so much of this. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is tremendous. That makes so much sense. I'd recognize that some people don't want to give up the social aspect of dieting because almost everybody engages in it, but I never saw that it could really be the pursuit of worthiness that people feel they're losing if they stop dieting. Mm-hmm. Oh, that really explains why it's so difficult for some people to let it go no matter how much it hurts them. Mm-hmm. In your manifesto, you said something really beautiful, or you both did, that body liberation is a vital part of creating a fair, just, and equitable world. I feel like what you've already explained really speaks to that. Do you feel this is something that must happen for every individual to work on detangling themselves from the ways they've been socialized and the ways that we're doing harm? 
or is it more on a global level that we have to get rid of fat shame and fat bias and stigma to really see these changes? I think what we, where I see it is I really want it to be happening in our systems and institutions and the way we work with folks. I think it's not up to individuals to do it, although, but I would like them to have the option to, and I would like them to have a pathway forward to something more sustainable, truly health promoting, something that's rooted in liberation. And I'm not sure at the way the systems ignore the social determinants of health and uphold personal responsibility and neoliberalism. Mm. So I really see it in terms of in terms of what we need to do in our systems and institutions. Meantime, as a clinician, I want to offer people an alternate path until those systems and institutions get caught up, but I don't think it's on the backs of individuals to do that, mm. if that makes sense. That makes a, a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of something Desiree Attaway taught me early on in my anti-racism work with her is how white people tend to think about racism at the individual level and black people live their lives at the in- trying to disrupt the systems and institutions that uphold and for only working and trying to eradicate racism at the individual level it's not gonna it's not gonna cause the whole thing to come crumbling down. Like we have to be working at these systems in these systems and institutions as well. And our body trust providers, I know we're sending many work within these kind of weight centric systems and they're trying to disrupt in these little ways. If we can get at the higher ups to change the system, it's going to have a much bigger impact. And what is the most effective way do you feel to do that? Since it feels like you both have a background and like an understanding of grassroots social justice movements and how these things typically progress. How do we apply that to something like weight bias? I think when there's enough community of people, this is a growing community, something I'm always telling people like our body trust providers when they're learning to find their voice and advocate and speak up at conferences and things is when they speak up is to say, I'm part of this growing community of healthcare providers. And that includes healthcare providers that is concerned about the war on people's size. And I think there's strength in numbers. As you gain numbers in this coalition, we have more strength. There's some stuff going on in the eating disorder community with the National Eating Disorder Association. And all of these people have written in to say, this isn't okay. And it's these individual people coming together that are causing NIDA to respond to some decisions they made more publicly and hold some some listening sessions to and and they've been really surprised by the numbers of people who turned up and showed mm. they thought it was they had no idea that how much this community has grown and so i think with social media you can see the numbers there's more people doing this individually and if we're not talking with systems and institutions about the harm they're doing and helping them reckon with 
the racist roots of so much of healthcare, really. I don't know how much is going to change, but the more that we have these individual people that know this and are advocating, I think there's more strength and actually disrupting at different levels too. Oh, that's exciting. I think think we can also, we have to center this on ethics a bit too. Like what we're doing is not working and is harming people. And I think the more that we become skilled at articulating that and talking about that and the more that people learn how to articulate that harm for themselves and the more stories we tell that are true the more this especially our medical systems are going to have to shift in order to stay ethical because right now this is incredibly unethical this is unethical and I think it's important to recognize that we never hear the real stories like we don't hear stories of living in a fat body we don't hear stories of living in a fat black queer body enough we hear manufactured narratives that serve industries mostly. And so those stories are really needed. And I think that it's those stories that will, can, that can change um, how this goes, because I don't think people really know mm-hmm. what that experience is wholly. And I think people really don't know that nobody is rescued or healed by weight loss either. Yeah, because that's the only stories we do hear is mm-hmm. with this narrative arc of weight loss. And yeah, you know, that's yeah. what was why Ra- Roxanne Gay's book was so radical. Mm-hmm. Is it starts off as like, this isn't a weight loss book. There's no like, I've arrived at the end. This is just, this is a memoir of my body. And mm-hmm. those are the stories that are so missing. People think they have it all figured out. Mm-hmm just by looking at somebody, what's going on with the story. And that's really why we started this Exploring Your Body Story retreat is to give people a chance to explore their stories because so much of the homecoming of coming home to our bodies and reclaiming body trust happens when we understand how it was lost to begin with. How do you help people remember when it began? Yeah, yes. A really common question we ask in our retreats is how did you first come to learn that your body was a problem? How did you first come to learn that fat bodies were a problem? And most people can say by the age of nine, 10, most people that we work with can say they know the moment, they know who it was. It was always an outside source. It was always an adult. And it's often where they started the body project, the lifelong body project. And Another question we ask and and often begin talks with is what has come between you and being at home in your body? Mm. And that's where people are able to name trauma and oppression, racism, social constructs of beauty and health, race, gender, all of these social constructs. Disrupt embodiment, feeling at home, at one with our bodies, puberty, and people are able to see all of these life events. And what many people come to find is it exploring and naming and really reclaiming our body story is it evolves over time. So the story starts with a, an exploration and it continues over mm-hmm. sometimes over the course of our lifetime to really understand the depth and complexity of our stories. And we believe what we witness is when people really start to understand the messages 
and the socialization and the indoctrination. And many of the people in their lives did not intend to harm them, but the impact was harmful. They start to shift that internally directed anger out externally. As Hillary said at the beginning, I think was like, how do we locate the problem outside of the bodies of the people that we serve? Mm. And that in that exploration, people really start to see the brainwashing and the socialization and the Kool-Aid really. But when people are first learning this and you start sharing it with people are like, whose Kool-Aid are you drinking? Right. They're in total disbelief. <laughs> yeah. You're like, you're drinking some Kool-Aid if you think that's going to work, quote unquote work. And then over time, they start to see, oh, I'm not drinking. This is the truth. The dominant culture are the Kool-Aid drinkers. Absolutely. That sounds like really deep work. How long is that program? This, do you want to say? I was going to say the rest of your life. I'm just kidding. (laughs) 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 No way to sell it. Um, <laughs> uh, we offer a bunch of we offer a few different options um there's a six-week course that's really like tightly packaged introduction to this paradigm I think we do this work in retreat settings we do this work we have an online school of unlearning that's nine months long and a lot of people choose to do this work in like ongoing groups with a body trust provider or one-on-one with a body trust provider, depending on how much you've been harmed and how much you've had to cope to survive. The time spent unraveling can really differ from person to person, but it's intensely worthwhile. I think what we're trying to do is build a relationship with ourselves and our bodies that we want to be in for a lifetime. Uh, Not that we're trying to fix or correct into something we can tolerate. And it really differs from person to person. We've seen people have really great outcomes from the six-week course. And I don't know how that happens. That's remarkable to me. But I think just sometimes people are in this place where they're ready to hear the concepts. And then they they find like applications that maybe they already have a therapist or a dietitian to support them in the work. And sometimes people are in it for, oftentimes people are in it for a long time because it's just perpetual unlearning. It's a real shift away from something dominant. This new three-day retreat is an invitation to begin the exploration and community. We've long done a Reclaiming Body Trust retreat in person and with COVID and some of the things we've been exploring in our own training and programs that we've been signing up for. We really liked this three-day format where we come together for a couple hours live and we hear from some speakers who share their body stories And then in the meantime, we're sending prompts and some videos to help people do some of their own exploration of their own body story in the time out of the live Uh. sessions that are part of this three-day retreat. And that can often begin like where the the unfolding begins and the inquiry process starts to begin. Oh, I love that. So I'm going to include all of your links in the show notes, but where would you recommend people start to get to know your work better or to just keep up with what Be Nourished is doing? Instagram is one way to just start following us and seeing what we post. We have a free workbook, a free downloadable workbook that you can sign up for a newsletter and receive. And you can do that by 
scrolling to the bottom of any uh, web page on our website. And that's just a 12-page workbook that just introduces people to some of these concepts and, and gives them a way to do some of their own exploration. And starting to just get our newsletter can be a way to hear about upcoming events and things. We send out a Body Trust Tuesday every week, which is just a little reminder of this work and this truth. And then the six-week e-course that Hillary mentioned is, is great uh, for people who want to explore it a little bit more. And then we do have a 30-day e-course if there are providers who are listening and curious about promoting body trust in your work, we have a course by that name that drips into your email over 30 days. Awesome. As a closer, if there was one thing that you could impart to all listeners that just from you saying it, they will understand it and internalize it, what would it be? I would say the struggle has not been your fault. Definitely not your fault. It was designed to be something that you took on and it was never meant to work and freedom is possible on the other side of um, that knowing. Yes. I would also say that you're not broken, that you get to be included in this. Now we see a lot of people are drawn to this work and they want it for everybody else. I'd like to do like the Oprah thing where like you get a car and you get to love your body and you get to love your body. But there's a different set of rules for people like me in air quotes. Mm. And what I want to say is you're not broken. This work is for you. It's for everybody. And this work is about trying different, not harder. Thank you so much for coming on. That That's just perfect. Did you have any epiphanies today? That framing around knowing that the work is never done and the concept of being betrayed by your whiteness was fascinating to me. I'm so glad that Hillary and Dana were willing to take the conversation in that direction with me and give us a deeper perspective on some of the systems of oppression that diet culture helps uphold. Remember, the only fee for the show is that you share it with others. Liking, reviewing, and sharing the show with other people really helps maximize the reach of this message. The content that the guests share is so helpful and so healing. I really want to see this message reach as many people as possible. So please feel free to take a shot of you listening to the show and tag me when you share it on social media. That's at Dahlia Kinsey RD. Thank you again for joining me. I will see you next time.